The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, Owen Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... Over the years, what I learned is that different doesn't mean bad. Like, different means just individual and unique. And you have to lean into that because if you don't, you're neglecting a huge part of your life and who you are. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulon podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Insulone podcast. As always, thanks so much for joining us. It proves that you are ready to take action in terms of your health and your diabetic well-being and improve by even just 1% each week, which in itself is a massive jump each week. So today I have a massive guest a guest that I was looking forward to chatting with for a very long time. The guest is Lauren Bongiorno from the United States, and Lauren is the CEO and founder of Risley Health and the Diabetic Health Journal. Lauren is challenging the current healthcare system and the world of diabetes management through her company's innovative health coaching programs and online educational classes. She has lived with type 1 diabetes since she was seven years old and believes that when health transforms, so does everything else. Our relationships, our time, our career, our families, and most importantly, ourselves. Me and Lauren have been in touch back and forth through messages and voice notes for a while now, so it was great to finally sit down and chat with Lauren properly over this conversation. So... Enjoy myself and Lauren's chat. Lauren, first thing I want to do before we get stuck in is say that I am delighted to finally speak to you properly. We have been going back and forth for probably two years now at this stage. (laughs) We've been on a couple of Zooms, but we've never really had an in-depth one-to-one conversation. So I'm delighted to have you on. I know. I'm so excited for this uninterrupted time, Owen. So what I want, want to jump straight into is, and again, you've probably told this story so many times like I have to and sometimes you can become almost desensitized to your own experience after being diagnosed but from what I know about your story Lauren is you were diagnosed at seven and 
a quote that I heard, I think, from your dad, and I heard you talking about a good few times, was your dad said to you, when you're diagnosed, your A1C is now the most important report card you'll ever get. Mm, Yes. What was that experience like? (laughs) So I think like many things that you hear as a child, and especially a child diagnosed with diabetes, you realize that it sticks with you later on in life, whether that's what a doctor said to you or what your parents or friends say to you. Um, and those things can help you in some ways. And they also can, you know, not harm you, but, um, create challenges for you. And I think from day one, my parents and especially my dad was always like, you can do anything with diabetes as long as you take care of yourself, right? Like you have to, until there's a cure, your number one priority like has to be taking care of your health and your blood sugars. And that from the start was like, okay, like this is my role. This is my job. I never really questioned it. It was just who I became and and how I lived my life. Not necessarily meaning that my numbers were perfect all the time or anything like that, because it definitely wasn't and we'll, you know, we can get into that later of why it wasn't. But um, I think how it maybe challenged me was I put so much emphasis on my A1C for years. Like I remember walking into the endocrinologist so many times as a child and then a teenager and young adult with that like just anxiety looming over you of like hearing the doctor's footsteps, hearing the knock at the door, <laughs> them coming in the paper. And then also like why they don't just give you the A1C right away. Then they start talking to you about other things. And I'm like, I'm just here to know my A1C. Like, well, <laughs> can you just tell me that please? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah. And so there was so much pressure on that is that, so I, I chased that a lot instead of chasing what was sustainable and also really healthy for my mental health and emotional health and yeah, just like overall relationship with diabetes. So from that, were you kind of at a place where the most important thing is this A1C? It doesn't matter how I get that number. I just have to ensure that I do. Yeah. I think from ages, I would say seven to 17, 18, I knew it was important, but it was more so, um, like I didn't, it wasn't like at all costs I was going to do anything like I possibly could to have a lower A1C. My A1Cs were always in like the high sixes, low, low sevens, but this was also before CGM. So I probably was having, you know, 300s, 400s, and also 40s and 50s Mm. um, in, in terms of the range of blood sugars. It really was kind of... I would say when I turned 18 and I went off to college where that turned into, okay, it wasn't just being nervous and looking at my A1C as a grade. It turned into looking at it as a sign of my self-worth and something that I could control. So yeah, that's when I think it, it took a turn uh, was college. And and, I, and I, I've spoken about this a few times as well of how the whole idea of an A1C can be so flawed and you kind of hit the nail on the head yourself there Lauren by saying your A1C on paper was good but it's the average of all those highs and all those lows and I think sometimes if we're constantly focusing on that specific number for our A1C we can forget about the daily short-term or even weekly management that essentially is what leads to how we feel our energy our mood our quality life each day so was that something that was there like a turning point for you in college or was it just something that you had 
learned over time? Yeah. So it was almost like the means didn't justify the ends in the way that I was getting to that A1C. So I remember I was a junior in college. I walked into the endocrinologist's office and she was expecting me to have, you know, like a college A1C, right? Like you're supposed to be going out, you're supposed to be drinking, you're supposed to be eating everything, not really paying as close enough attention. It's like every parent's and doctor's, you know, biggest fear. And for me, it was the complete opposite. I walked in and she, like her jaw hit the floor. She was like, you have a 5.7 A1C. Like, how did you do this? This is incredible. She brought in this like other nurse. They were like high-fiving my mom. And I literally can remember sitting there kind of smiling, but almost watching myself from the outside and realizing like out of, out of body experience. Wow. Like I can't sustain this. Like I have, yes, got a sense of control in my life by medical standards on paper, because I have a 5.7 A1C, but at the same time, like I'm not eating carbs. And I, at that point had lost my menstrual cycle for, I think it was like three or four years because my body fat percentage was so low because I didn't know how to go out and eat and have foods that I, you know, my friends were eating or loved, or just like getting frozen yogurt on a Friday night after the movies with friends because I, I was, I didn't know how to bolus for them and I didn't know how to not go high. And after the first half of my life with diabetes, being so reactive of my numbers and constantly chasing my numbers, I got to college and like many people in the early twenties, you're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out your purpose in life. I had went to play, I got recruited to play division one soccer in the United States at a college. And when I got there, it like, wasn't what I imagined it to be. And so I was feeling really lost. And so I went to something that I thought I could control, which were my blood sugar numbers. And it just went to a point where it went too far. I became obsessed with exercise and obsessed with um, you know, food and the numbers and obsessing over everything to an unhealthy degree. And so I was going through all that for years silently by myself, hadn't even told anybody, my now fiance at the time, boyfriend then like had no idea that these are the constant thoughts that we're having on going on in my head. And so I sat there at the doctors and was like, how am I going to live my life like this? Like, I'm not happy. And so that was the moment when I realized that I had to find a better way. I had to find a better way than A, on one end of the spectrum, being reactive and chasing my numbers all the time, or on the other end of the spectrum, B, getting having a 5.7 A1C, but completely sacrificing so much of my own happiness and flexibility and freedom in life. Hmm. And there had to be a middle ground. And that honestly was when I set out to find that middle ground. And when you were kind of caught in two minds in a sense of I can either be super restrictive and have perfect blood sugars or live the way I want to live and have quote unquote awful blood sugars. Did you believe yet that there was an in-between? You know, and you have to remember too, that was back then when, and I'm not, I'm not that old, right? I'm 20, I'm going to be 28 years old. But when I say back then, it was, <laughs> it really was before social media, right? Mm -hmm. And so there weren't people that I had seen that had done that or her who were my age and living a, a happy, fulfilling life with great blood sugar numbers, but also going on vacations and not bringing like your stash of like low glycemic snacks with you, like, which I, I did many times. And so 
I didn't see anybody. So I was very much going on that journey by myself. And it took me a lot longer than I think it it should have. It took me, it took me honestly a few years to come into that balance. I knew it had to be possible because and if it and if it hadn't been done before, like I was determined to find a way because you're at the end of the day, it's like your happiness and freedom, like that matters, that matters so much. And that's mm. what I really place a lot of value on. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. You know, for me it's obviously important that we are constantly managing our our day-to-day health, our long-term health, but not sacrificing the way that we want to live, the way we want to eat, the things that we want to do. And finding that balance is so important. And I think even from everything that you've done and continue to do, you prove that you don't have to be so restrictive. You can do all these different things that you want while still optimizing your health and, and feeling great too. Yes. Yeah. It really is about the strategies and the tools and that integrative and holistic understanding of how your specific body works. I never thought up until that point that it was possible because I didn't have those resources. I wasn't taught you know, how to really slow down and look at your numbers and identify your body's patterns and you know, that's, that's why if you're, if you're set to go on this journey and you're not given a map, like, yeah, it's going to feel a little bit harder, maybe impossible. But if you have a roadmap and you say, Hey, like here have people went on this journey before they've gotten to where you're trying to go, take this roadmap. You're going to be like, okay, great. So I think that's what I created for myself and now help other people go on that journey for themselves. Thinking back to when again you were kind of caught in those two minds and you say the the nurses were high five and saying Lauren has a fantastic A1C but deep down you knew that this isn't what you wanted and what can happen and even from my own experience or even speaking to other diabetics what happens is on paper on the surface our A1C looks great and therefore we relate that that to us being healthy but if we're the ones sitting in that chair in, in the doctor's office or whatever it might be, we're the only ones that really know, well, that A1C is good, but too restrictive. I don't have any energy. I'm in a bad mood all the time. I, I'm constantly fighting highs, constantly fighting lows. Mm-hmm. So if there's anyone listening to this right now who has been through that experience and they're the only ones that know deep down something has to change, what do you think from your experience would be a helpful first step? Yeah. So I think that the first thing that I want to say too is no matter what your A1C is, whether it is a 5.7 or whether it's a nine or a 10 or a 13, right? Like you have to decide what that means for you. And it's not your endocrinologist's job to point a finger or to validate it and say, this is great, or to point a finger and saying, this is bad, right? Like on the other end, I want to make sure we're including everyone who's listening here too, that may, may be struggling to even lower their A1C. We've had clients come through their pro- our programs who have lowered their A1C, let's say from a, you know, a 10 to a 7.8, let's say, right? In a three, four, five month period. And then they go to their endo and their endo's like, yeah, but it could be better. And they leave feeling so deflated. And it's up to us to say, you know what? Like this is, I'm proud of myself for this. Or 
this is great on paper, but it's something that I want to see how I can make it more sustainable. So I think that's the first question you want to ask yourself is like, how do I feel with my diabetes management right now as a whole? Like you could even rate it from zero through 10, zero being like, I'm not fulfilled at all. 10 being I'm feeling so fulfilled. Um, with that, I would also take into account, like, how is your diabetes management impacting your mood, your energy, all those things you said, Owen, your relationships, your day to day, your career, your focus, um, really take those things into account beyond just the numbers. So I would say that's the first step. Um, and then the second step really from there is to slow down, right? Like, I think the reason why so many of us are automatically don't slow down for diabetes is one, because when we're diagnosed, everybody tells us, don't let diabetes slow you down, right? Like <laughs> keep going, keep going. So we have the story of like, okay, well, I'm just not going to slow down. I'm not going to let it get in my way. But there's a difference between letting diabetes stop you and slow you down and slowing down to learn more about yourself and your relationship with diabetes. And that's a really important step. So slowing down could mean for you journaling uh, your blood sugars, your mood, your energy that day, patterns you're seeing. Slowing down could mean slowing down to have a conversation with a partner in your life or a family member or a friend and opening up and saying, hey, like I don't talk much about my diabetes, but I want to let you know like how this impacts my life and also how I'm struggling right now, right? Being really open about that and and vulnerable and letting our guards down of having to be perfect or, you know, hold up this invisible disease um, look that we do sometimes where we're like fine on the outside, but on the inside, we're actually struggling. Um, slowing down could also mean being more mindful about pre-bolusing or your insulin strategies, right? And slowing down can also mean just leaning into learning how to love yourself and accept yourself even just a little bit more with this path and journey that you're on and this diagnosis. So ultimately, I think it's going to look different for everybody, but it comes down to leaning into your relationship with it. And I think what I always notice from the content that you post and any video that I see you speak on or anything that you do, a common theme that seems to trickle throughout is how big you are on people's relationship with their diabetes. And that's something that I even did personally kind of through my own journey up to this point of, as you say, slowing down. And for me thinking, what does this mean to me? What impact does this have? You know, what are my habits and routines that lead to me feeling good or feeling bad, whatever it might be. But how has your relationship, Lauren, with your own diabetes changed throughout your life since diagnosis? Because when anybody looks at you, they think confident diabetic. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny that you bring this up because I don't know if this ever happens to you, but usually like once a year, I'll end up in a rabbit hole of just scrolling back through my old content and kind of looking back at like the first kind of post that I was posting on, on Instagram. And for whatever reason I did this last night and I was like, oh my gosh, if you really look back at all my posts since 2014, when I made the account, you can literally see in my posts and captions, my whole entire relationship with diabetes transform. And it's actually kind of cool that it's this journal in a sense, or way to document this, this process that wasn't even intended. Um, I mean, I posted on Instagram for 
want to say it was about a year before I first even did this one post. I think it was World Diabetes Day. And it was like my coming out of, oh my gosh, I have diabetes. Here you go. And I'm also at the same time petrified to post this because what if people don't like me? And what if people think I'm weird? Um, I think I never neglect, I was never somebody who neglected my diabetes when I was younger, but I definitely didn't celebrate it. I definitely didn't um, put it at the forefront. I think once you get to that kind of middle school age where you realize, oh, there's, you know, boys and there's girls and they could either like you or then they don't like you. That's when I started to hide it a little bit more. And I even remember I was walking down the hallway. I want to say it was fourth or fifth grade. So a few years after I was diagnosed and I was going to the bathroom. So there was nobody in the hallway except for a teacher who was on, I guess, hallway duty. And she was a little bit older. She had to be maybe like in her fifties. And she walked up to me and she goes, Oh, you're Lauren. Hi. I'm, I forget her name. So-and-so. And I was like, uh, hi. And she was like, I want, and she like bends down and whispers. And she's like, I want to let you know that I have type 1 diabetes too. And I know that you just got on a pump. So I want to show you where I hide mine. And she literally, I don't know if this was appropriate, but she literally like pulled down her front of her shirt and, and showed me that she stuck it in her bra. And at the time I was like, okay, this is really weird, but like, okay. But I don't even know if I'm like wearing bras at that age yet, but regardless that stuck with me and is something that I didn't recognize at the time, but was one of the first times that I was taught to hide my diabetes. And I think for going you know, on in years and years, it was once again, just something that I hid and didn't want to tell anybody about because maybe of that conversation with that teacher, or maybe just of societal standards of what you're shown of you're different because you have this. Um, but essentially over the years, what I learned is that different doesn't mean bad, like different means just individual and unique. And you have to lean into that because if you don't, you're neglecting a huge part of your life and who you are. And I think that's also another thing that I hear a lot of on the online space is you're not your diabetes and diabetes is not all of you. And like, yes, that's all true, but it also gives the message that it can stay in the shadows. And if you don't bring diabetes out of the shadows for what I've learned, it's you never get to that point of being able to tap into more of your limitless potential because this is a part of you and you have to integrate it and accept it into your life if you want to come to the other side of feeling more confidence and more more confident and more empowered with your diabetes. Yeah, it's one of those conditions that because you are on it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's always going to be there. And for me, if I don't acknowledge it or if I don't give it the attention it needs and deserves, then I am the one that feels the effects of that almost instantly. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you kind of had me thinking there about how that was the first time you were in one way almost taught to hide it from that mm -hmm. teacher. And you're probably someone who is the most confident about their diabetes that I've seen online anyway, which is a great thing to see. So you obviously didn't let that hold you back. And like, have you spoken to people who had hidden it for so many years, even around the time that you might have? 
Oh my gosh. Yes. So many people, so many people. And I think the online space has been, and even just podcasts like this, like have been such a blessing because we're not on our own islands in our houses anymore being like, maybe there's somebody out there like me, right? There's, <laughs> there, we're all out there and there's so many incredible stories and um, just inspiration for, for other people who are struggling. But I even think of, uh, you know, our Decide and Conquer group coaching program, which is one of our signature uh, coaching programs for women living with type one diabetes. We, we just had our first, um, uh, it's our 10th round of launching the program. We just had our first call the other day and there was somebody on there who has had diabetes for 20 something years. And afterwards she posted something on her Instagram stories and messaged me afterwards and was like, this is the first time, like I'm like, there are so many friends and family who are going to message me because they don't even know that like, I'm struggling with this. And I think that's a burden that we think that we have to carry on our own. And it's really scary the first time you start to open up about it and tell your coworkers or have a conversation with, you know, somebody maybe that you see in a coffee shop with a CGM on or whatever it is. But each time you do it, you're like breaking down these walls and it does get easier. And I think that's the only reason why I am in this relationship with diabetes that I am today is because I just kept breaking down those walls and reconditioning the way that my mind thought and related to my diabetes and going from shame or this is something to be hidden or kept in the shadows to why? Like, this is a part of me, so I'm going to show it. Mm. When did you go from just worrying or managing your own diabetes to then knowing that this is what I want to do. I want to help people from all over the world manage their own. Mm. So it was definitely a, um, it was over time. It wasn't like this instant thing. It kind of, I kind of fell into it. So when I was a senior in college, I was on the law school track and I was taking my LSATs, took them twice, put a lot of time and effort years into studying and, and all of that. Um, but I was applying to law school. And at the time I had been throughout college very much into health because I was in those obsessive years of food and nutrition and discovering all these things that the doctors, you know, weren't telling us about our diabetes. And so I was blogging about it on my first blog, like kind of before like blogs became popular. And I was always putting off my law school, you know, studying or, or applications until after I would like respond to comments on the blog or emails that I was getting. And even though it was maybe, you know, two or three comments or an email a week, like I felt so much joy in responding to them and helping them. And, um, I wanted to ultimately go to law, uh, go to law school and work eventually in a career that was on lobbying and creating change in healthcare. But one day I was in a yoga class and I had this massive epiphany that this wasn't mine to do. And that was instant. That thought, it was like, this isn't the path for me. I don't want to fight against a system for years and not see anything change. I Instead, I want to make an impact on this individual level and I want to empower other people to be able to create positive change in their minds and their bodies and take ownership of that for themselves. Because at the time it was, it was so eye-opening and transformational for me, even though I was 
you know, not in that finalized place. And there's never a final place, but even though I was not in the best relationship with diabetes at that point, I still knew there was like a lot that we weren't getting from our endocrinologist and from the healthcare system. So um, that's kind of when I told my parents, came home for that yoga class. I, I was like, mom, dad, I need a conference call with you two. <laughs> and I told them, I was like, I am going to go to health coaching school. At the time, health coaching was definitely not as credible as it is today. And they were like, um, okay, you have a year, you have a year. So I moved back home. I literally started coaching people out of my parents' basement. My operation system was post-it notes on the wall, like writing a new client who came in and then crossing them off like when they were done. And that it just built over time. And I got to the point where I had had so many clients that I couldn't do it by myself anymore. And over the years of just, we've built a team and we have over, you know, a thousand people who apply for coaching a year and we help so many people transform their, their relationship to diabetes and their lives. And we have husbands, we have family members, we have parents who write us saying, I've never, I haven't seen my you know child or my spat, my partner, or whoever it is like this happy in such a long time. Like, thank you. And this is really impactful work that I'm doing. And I'm so glad that I followed that calling and that passion, even though I couldn't see what the end would be. I knew that I just had to follow what I was feeling called to do. The place that you're in right now, and as I said earlier on, you seem to be doing a million different things, which is amazing to see. But back then when you were writing the clients on the post-it notes and crossing them off when they were done, did you have a big dream of what you wanted or was it day by day, I'm going to help people and see where it takes me? I think it was day by day, I'm going to help people and see where it takes me and there was always this voice. It, it, it wasn't even in my head. It was like in my heart that was like, this is this is really powerful work that you're doing. And even though there's nobody really else out there doing diabetes coaching or people that you can look up to for this, like just keep going. Like you're going to help create other people to be able to do this too. And health coaching is a really integral part of the, or should be, and will be one day of the healthcare system. And you just, just keep helping one person after the next, after the next, after the next, and, and building those, um, building that data too, and building the, the examples and the structures of, you know, what works and, and what might, what might not work and what you can do better. And just always refining, refining, refining. I'm obsessed. And my whole journey with this has been obsessed with just getting better and better and better at what I do and, and what we do now as a company at Risely. I love it. And everything that I see from you, it's so clear that you're so passionate about what you do, but given the experience that you have had up to this point, Lauren, and obviously the hundreds or thousands of people that you've helped. What do you think is missing from our endo appointments? Because you always seem to highlight the fact that we might see our endo for an hour or two a year. And obviously the rest of it is us by ourselves with our diabetes. And what do you think is missing from those appointments that would be massively beneficial to people. 
Yeah. So I like to always say I was so fortunate enough to have a great endocrinologist as a child and into adulthood. I've only had two um, and they were amazing and I still struggled. So I think about people who don't have great insurance or people who don't have great endos, right? Like at a systemic level, the healthcare system is not set up to support people with type 1 diabetes to the depth and the detail and level that we need to be able to thrive. And it's very much, oh, if your A1C is high, you're non-compliant. Why aren't you taking care of yourself? Why aren't you doing better? Mm-hmm. Or if your A1C looks great on paper, it's like, well, you don't have to ask about mental health. We don't have to ask about your relationship to food. We don't have to ask if you're, you know, you're exercising or if you, you know, your insulin sensitivity or resistance or hormones or all these other things, right? It's very surface level and then they, they write you off. So it's very transactional and it's not the endocrinologist's fault, right? Like they are one of the lowest, at least in the United States, the lowest paid specialties um, for doctors. There is a shortage of them. They want to help, but it's the system that's not set up correctly. And so at the same time, yes, we have to advocate for policy change and 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 ultimately hope to have a system one day that does support us but at the same time we can't sit around and just complain like we have to do something about it and take it into our own hands so mm. i think the biggest thing that you know our coaching method co- coaching methodology does that it falls short in, in endocrinologists is Number one, it's the behavior change, right? It's it's looking at a lot of times we want to lower our blood sugars, right? Like you're not going to go to a type one. You're not going to hear them say, no, I don't want to improve my <laughs> blood sugars, right? Like, but it's a lot about the behavior and the mindset, right? Reframing the past experiences, um, better um, just habits and creating automated habits that support your lifestyle. I think that's one piece. The second piece is education. There is such a lack of education on a scale of zero mm. through 10 in terms of how we get educated. We're at a two and a half, mm. right? Like it's hormones, insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance, what you do with personal training, right? Like that is huge. Um, relationship to food, relationship to self, um, your mindset, your bolusing strategies, your insulin to carb ratios. Don't even get me into that, right? Like <laughs> the pumps of the pump manufacturers, they're like, our main focus is we want to get more people onto our pump systems. But what they really need to be focusing on is helping people who get on their systems to be able to optimize them more and keep them on it because their technology is great, but you have to know how to optimize it. Right. And, and really understand over the long haul, like how to change things on your own. Right. Like if, if you're not talking to your doctor every day and or every week, like you have to know how to do these on your own. And if you're not set up to know how to do that, you're going to, you're going to fail. Right. And not fail in the sense of like, it's your fault, but you're not set up to succeed. So I think there are a lot of areas that we just don't get supported on and we have a choice. We could either complain about that and say everything that's wrong, or we can take ownerships ourselves and say, you know what? Yeah, it sucks to spend more resources and time and energy on doing this for myself, but this is what I have to do if I want to feel good and I want to feel better from day to day. That was part one of my chat with Lauren. And as you know, if you are listening on the day of the release, Part two will be out tomorrow, but if you're listening on any other day, part two is going to be the next episode in our list. So enjoy that one, and thanks for listening to part one.